0: Welcome to the NASCAR NBC podcast. I'm your host Nate Ryan, and so glad to be joined for the first time this season by our resident Hall of Famer on NASCAR NBC, Dale Jarrett. DJ, welcome back to the show. Welcome back to Charlotte.
3: You yeah. live in Phoenix full time, so good to see you here. Yeah, thank you. Glad to be back, and uh, always uh, interesting to come back and and catch up on things. Uh, you know, I I look at things from a different perspective sometimes whenever I'm away from everybody and kind of away from from the scene a little bit. And and so uh, I'm interested to see and hear about comments that people have to say in this part of the country because... Believe it or not, even when the race isn't in the Phoenix and Scottsdale area, there's a lot of fans out there that, that come up to me and, and talk about that. So uh, glad to be back. So before we delve into the scene here, what's the scene been
0: like in the Phoenix area where I presume you're playing a lot of golf these days and oh. enjoying the weather? Yeah, play,
3: Yeah, I, I wish I were playing better, but uh, the <laughs> golf game is not very good. But I do play. The weather is fantastic. Uh, just really enjoying the time there. Um, but, but fans are excited out there, as I think they are and showing us all over the country uh, with what is happening. I, I will say that um, before the season started, as people asked me my opinion of the new car, um, I was very hesitant because I really wasn't sure what may come of this and, and how it may perform. I, I, but I've been more than pleasantly surprised uh, with how the competition has been. So people are recognizing that uh, even fans that were that I'll call more casual fans, that, that they're excited about what they've seen uh, to this point and, and what may come as the drivers and teams get more custom with these cars.
0: Definitely want to get into the new car, the next-gen discussion with you, DJ. And we were just talking about before... We got started here that enthusiasm and the good racing that they've had this year and certainly that was evident on sunday at richmond raceway and I definitely want to talk about that on the nascar nbc podcast with you here today and i want to start dj with the way the race unfolded was interesting and in that you had these long green flag runs you had the caution breaks but it came down to essentially divergent strategies where Denny Hamlin makes an extra pit stop in the final 100 laps. William Byron tries to stretch it, and it works out that Hamlin's strategy is better. What did you make about just how the whole 100 final laps unfolded and how you think the drivers handled it? Because if you're in the position of William Byron or Martin Truex Jr. and you're being asked to stretch, I'm sure it's much different than Denny Hamlin and Kevin Harvick where you've got
3: tires that were almost 50 laps fresher. Yeah, and, and so let's start there in the fact that as a driver with fresher tires, very seldom are, were they put in a position where there were cars that were faster than them that was costing them time. Whereas if you were uh, William Byron and, and many others, Martin Truex Jr., who were the, the first two there, uh, they they were having to not only worry about racing each other but pay attention to faster cars coming at them and, and a lot of times cars that hadn't been faster than at any point in time during the race, but because they had these new tires. And so that's costing you time on the racetrack. And so trying to figure what you're doing at that particular time and what you need to be doing uh, is way more difficult than what Denny and Kevin Harvick were going through and the the way the situation they were put in by their teams with this strategy because they're always moving forward. They're being the aggressors and making passes where – the other guys are just kind of hanging on and trying to get the most out of it uh, and trying to win the race at the same time. So fascinating to watch. Interesting that a couple of teams changed their strategy kind of midstream in the race. And I don't even know if it was midstream. It might have been three-quarter stream into this race <laughs> that, that they opted out of a, of a similar strategy that, that Denny and Kevin employed later in the race that, that put them first and second. So I I would have to think that some of them might look back and, and You know, as we go to other races that may be similar, and certainly as we go back to Richmond the next time, that that they'll be looking at things a lot differently. William Byron made
0: his last pit stop with 89 laps to go, and again, he had enough fuel, he had enough tire, to a degree, to get to the end. It was just going to be a matter of could he maintain the pace, and ultimately he couldn't. So you've been in that situation, DJ, in terms of you've started hundreds of cup races. I'm sure you've been in this situation before that he's in. Did you know watching that at some point, okay, Sorry, but the twenty-four is dead in the water here. <laughs> Strategy yeah. is not going to work. Yeah,
3: I, I mean you have that idea, but I'll have to say that that there was a lot going on, and so I, I'm not just going to fault Fox and the the commentators there for for not picking up on Denny and Kevin a little bit sooner to to get their progression through the field, uh, because I felt like that we were kind of led to believe in what we could see on TV that this was going to be a battle between could William Byron hold off Martin Truex Jr. for the biggest part of that last run. And let's say the last... 25 or 30 laps that we could see that Truex was gaining, and, and they were mentioning that, but we weren't talking about and weren't being told about uh, Denny Hamlin and Kevin Harvick slicing through the field at that point in time. Yeah, you know, But there was so much other stuff going on. You had Larson, who was making an appearance up into the top five for kind of the first time yesterday, and so you had to pay attention was he going to be able to pull this off, uh, among others. So it's so hard when you're there, own tires that are much older than many of the cars and, and again you're sometimes you're letting cars go or having to race around others that you aren't necessarily haven't been accustomed to during the that particular race or even many other times during other races and so you're not exactly sure what to expect from them because they're so much faster and how are they going to handle this situation where are they going to go and how much room do you need to give them so it, it really your focus is lost on trying to make your best lap time sometime and, and exactly where you need to be and, and that's the difficult part of employing that strategy you just hope that you've built up enough to give yourself the opportunity at the end
0: and it certainly sounds like all the things you got going on there. It would favor somebody with experience, a veteran, and we see the top two finishers are two guys over 40, Denny Hamlin and Kevin Harvick. 47th victory in his career for Denny Hamlin. First in 12 races. It ends a streak of 12 consecutive winners under the age of 30. And it also was (laughs) Denny Hamlin's first top 10 of 2022 and i believe kevin harvick's first top five what do you make of all that i mean i six races into the cup season did you think that denny hamlin and kevin harvick would be without a top five and then to see them finish one two at richmond
3: yeah you you wouldn't think that even with the new car and the adjustments as a driver and and even as veteran drivers because these guys are so talented you just have to imagine that they're going to adapt pretty quickly to to any changes but it has we can see it has been a struggle And, and i won't say that even though they finished first and second, that you know, were they necessarily a top five car all day long as far as running and the speeds? How much did the strategy help them to get there? So I think there's still things that both of those drivers and teams will continue to be figuring out as to how to be better in, in situations that this type of strategy isn't employed. The, just, the, all of those things that you said, Nate, are so fascinating that <laughs> it had been 12 races in a row that under 30 uh, had won. A lot of those,
0: of course, were Kyle Larson, but still. Yeah, but
3: But it's just amazing that uh, that when you look down the list at the new winners that we've had so far to this point and everything that's been going on, that was this truly a a huge changing of the guard with this new car? Was that to to be the reason, even though we saw Larson and and others win last year, but I I think that – it just goes to show you that, that there does come that time. You know, that, that every era kind of has that changing, and we're not exactly sure what it is that that makes that. There, there's no doubt in my mind that Denny Hamlin and Kevin Harvick haven't lost anything as far as their competitive spirit and and their ability to win races. Uh, they will do that. Uh, it's just times sometimes, and it seems that it comes later in your career, um, and maybe I'm not giving enough to that because I, you know, I look at I won the majority of my races, and and my championship when I was over forty, the best years yeah. of my career came at that time, and so I still think that these guys can get it done and win championships among many races. But it had been a while, and I'm not convinced that they'll both run right up front from this point forward. But I have I've probably seen more progression from Kevin Harvick and his team than even from Denny and his race team at, at this point in time. So you could kind of see it coming more from Kevin, but uh, it just shows that what a tremendous competitor and talent that Denny Hamlin is, that he could go there in a race that also means as much to him as anywhere else because it is uh, basically his home track.
0: Yeah, and I definitely want to get to that and your thoughts on his hometown, his Richmond roots there. But before we get to that, DJ, going back to the next gen, like you said, I mean, Austin Sindrick, Chase Briscoe, Ross Chastain at Circuit of the Americas, the last podcast we talked about this at length, that that's been the narrative that next-gen car must be the reason for three first-time runners in the first six races. And after Richmond, Denny Hamlin talked about adapting to this car. He was asked about, you know, what were the challenges. And in the post-race media center session, Denny said...
2: Well, I I think that, you know, for me, it's just, I I was kind of really honed in on the previous generation car on each track and, you know, had enough notes and enough memory, track memory, at each one of them to know that what I was searching for and a feel uh, that was correct and, and won races. And the challenge to this one is figuring out what this car likes and how it makes speed, and i got to start all over again um, when I come to these racetracks. So that's the biggest challenge of it beyond any you know shifting or braking or steering or anything like that. Uh, those are all challenges, but it's more just figuring out what makes this car tick and what makes it go around the racetrack in the shortest amount of time. And what is my role in that?
0: So DJ, you went through one major car change toward the end of your career with Carve Tomorrow. But even though the iterations didn't change much in terms of the cars themselves, I know there were a lot of changes during your career of what it took to make the car run fast. Like, you know, things that were the complete opposite on springs and shocks toward the end of your career versus the beginning of your career and I can remember at one point you want the car sealed off the ground another point it was get the the nose up as high as you can how do you relate to what veterans such as Denny have dealt with and Harvick have dealt with this year in adapting to a completely new car
3: yeah and I I think because of I I understand totally what they're talking about And, and the the car tomorrow was totally different and the only good thing that I could say about the car tomorrow was it helped me make my decision to retire <laughs> but that being aside it th- there was a change between 97 1997 and 1998 and we'd been running the Thunderbird up through 97 mm-hmm. Ford decided we were going to change over to the Taurus because it would help benefit them in car sales, and you totally understand that. Uh, but there was a huge difference, uh, even though we didn't change chassis or anything like that. The aerodynamics of the car uh, and what made the Taurus eventually go faster uh, versus what the Thunderbird wanted and needed, and and we'd had time to work on that. It just took us time, and and as a driver, it took me time to to understand where we needed to go to get that same feel and that same speed. And I can only imagine with the car with this new. Uh, car that these drivers have now not only is there a completely different body change with it but the chassis is so much different than probably than what most have ever driven uh, at at any level before and and so I think that's the biggest thing is finding that as to what changes make that happen and every driver is different we talk about that all the time that you know in, in any situation being at Joe Gibbs Racing even though none have performed at their highest level but what Kyle Bush might find that makes him go faster might not be exactly what Denny Hamlin's looked to make him go faster, and so even though they're getting some practice time it's very limited as to what they get and so it takes a little bit longer for some drivers to to get to that point and and it's frustrating as a driver and especially a driver that feels like that they're at the top of their game they've been there they they feel like that they understand what they need to go fast, but, but figuring out a, a new car and, and one with especially with, with a new chassis, uh, what that entails and, and what's going to make that happen. So I think there's still a lot of learning to do. How did you deal
0: with it or how did drivers deal with it in general where you know that <laughs> before you went fast because it was this way mm-hmm. and now the crew chief or the team or the engineers were, are telling you, no, you, you have to drive it this way. We have to have it set up this way. You can't run the old setup and go as fast as – whoever, probably at your time, it was Jimmy Johnson and Ryan Newman came in and ran Mm -hmm. these completely different setups in 02 that just turned the garage on its head. Like, how do you deal with that? Like, how do you, as a driver, do you just have to sort of just turn your brain off, you know, trust the team? That to me is what, I just, I can't wrap my head around like how a driver knows that this is the way he's always won, but now he's gonna have to do it this way.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I think the biggest thing that, that for me as a driver was getting the trust that my crew chief and the engineers then, as they came in and started taking over that I could trust what the car was going to do. So the trust in what they were saying and the trust of what my rear end and that seat was telling me <laughs> were were hard to get matched up sometimes. Yeah, and, and so uh, I I had a harder time with that and and being told, look, this is the setup that's going to make this car perform uh, at its maximum. And But that didn't always suit the feel that I needed in the car for me to be comfortable and giving it my maximum effort every single lap. And so that's the hardest thing is to make that change as a driver.
0: So as you mentioned, DJ, hometown win for Denny Hamlin in Richmond. Afterward, he reflected a little bit on spending some time with family and friends before the race, as well as what it was like watching Richmond Cup races from the grandstands as a kid.
2: It, It is more special. There's no question about it. Um, I had more family and friends here than any other racetrack. I I drove all the way to Amelia last night and hung out with a bunch of friends in their barn, froze my ass off, had a beer, one beer. uh, But it was like, it was fun to just kind of get back and see everyone from school. And it was just so cool to kind of see all that and and spend time with them. And um, it was, you know did, did it mean that we won no but it just it's a it's a big feeling inside when they all come to the race and say you know we'll see after in victory lane right and then you're able to do it so uh, it's it's just special because I, I sat in the stands here and watched the greatest short track drivers run around here I watched them different techniques and this track hasn't changed the shape of it ha- hasn't changed so I watched, you know, guys like Rusty that were extremely good here, like their lines entering turn one. And, you know, that changes with cars and stuff, but still the way they make speed is such an art form, And, um, you know, you just try to do your best as the driver. And, I mean, I, I got Kevin right behind me pressuring me, but I knew that no matter what, if I hit my marks and I concentrate on my job, that like, it was gonna be very difficult for him to to get around me. And part of hitting my marks is like, I can't miss it by that much. If I do, my car takes off and then I miss it by three feet and then I'm in big trouble. So you have to be so precise at this racetrack uh, because there's there's specific time being made in a certain way that it, it's just, it is it is art.
0: So. Just interested in your thoughts, DJ. You raced at Richmond since it was reconfigured to a three-quarter mile in 1988. You were a two-time winner there in 97, 99. When you watch it like Denny Hamlin, does it still look like it races the same way to you? And can you relate to DH talking about the precision, the art form that's required to hit those marks correctly?
3: Yes. And whenever you as a fan, and, and as I sit back and watch as a fan now, but as a former driver, understanding what they're going through. it, it But it is always driven essentially the same way from, from the time that we started racing there on, on this configuration. It looks rather simple. You know, it, there, There's nothing that you would look at and think, okay, yeah, maybe off of turn two it's kind of tight there because it flattens out. But the rest of it looks pretty simple. And, and they, it even went as far as one time when I was there testing that, that they literally brought the blueprints to me and showed me because huh. I was saying turns one and two are completely different than three and four. Huh. And they said, no, they're not. And, and they brought everything out and showed me that on paper they were exactly the same. Like Paul Sawyer opened up his following case. They, said, they came out and <laughs> they said, Yeah, you, know, you, you need to stop saying that these two ends are completely different. They said, This isn't Darlington. This yeah. is these two ends are the same. Yeah. And and when they showed me the measurements and everything, I said, I'm just telling you from a race driver standpoint and what I see and what I feel, the two ends drive completely different. Huh. How you enter turn one versus how you enter turn three are, are completely different. Now getting to those points on paper were the same things. But what you saw as a driver, how you can enter turn one and how you had to enter turn one if you were going to make speed versus how you entered turn three to make speed and not totally miss the corner uh, were, were totally different. And how you exit turn two versus how you can exit turn four were completely different. So that, in my mind... All the blueprints in the world weren't going to change my my vision of that. So it's a very simplistic racetrack in in what they designed, and it's maybe the best designed track for good racing uh, of any track that I've ever seen and and participated on. Uh, But it's one of the most difficult, too, to to go there time after time and, and continue to be able to be and hit those marks and be consistent with. So it's not only the first win of the season
0: for Denny Hamlin,
3: but also for Joe
0: Gibbs Racing, also for Toyota. You've watched this season, so you saw particularly things were, were really tough for Joe Gibbs Racing at Phoenix. That, that was the one where they were the most out to lunch. And Toyota Racing Development President David Wilson talked about that afterward with NBC Sports' Dustin Long,
4: and Wilson said that... We've been beating ourselves up like you cannot believe. Yeah, because because some of what we've seen over the per, first six races have been our you know shooting ourselves in, in the foot and and those you know those are the the tough ones and the hard ones to swallow. Why were you guys so good? The reason why this weekend was so important to us is because this is as close as you can get to Phoenix. Phoenix I would put as one of our worst Performances in our history, racing in this series, it was absolutely embarrassing. Um, we 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 more than missed it. We we uh, we screwed that up royally, and we we made some some mistakes heading to Phoenix, and uh, and so again, knowing that obviously the championship is going to be settled at Phoenix, we needed to figure out what we did wrong, and we needed to run well here. So this. This, for us, as much as anything, makes us gives us a, a degree of confidence, um, and, uh, and and believe me, um, we were feeling a lot better about getting back to Phoenix in the fall. I really um, don't want to speak to the specifics of it, um, but um, but we had we've had some aha moments over the past few weeks.
0: So. What I'm interested in your perspective here, DJ, Chevrolet has really come out of the box really strong in the first six races. And Jeff Burton and I talked about this last week on the podcast. They've got this new technical center that Chevrolet is building here in the Charlotte area with 100 engineers. They've got Dr. Eric Warren running it. It seems like they kind of came out of the box a little bit stronger from that perspective than Toyota did, which is surprising because Toyota is sort of set the blueprint for that, I think, over their their 15 years in NASCAR. So were were you surprised by uh, Toyota's struggles and maybe Chevrolet's successes so far this year?
3: I think I was uh, more surprised just by the the struggles from Toyota because, you know, being there from the start uh, of Toyota's interest into the cup season, I I could see right off that, you know, this was going to be a group and an organization that was going to put every effort and every – dollar that they needed to towards being the team that everyone looked at the 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 manufacturer that that was going to set the standard they they understood that ford and chevrolet in particular uh, between the two of them had dominated the cup series for many many years uh, as far as wins and i know you know dodge and others came through but but you always looked and measured yourself by the chevrolet and ford camps but toyota uh, was looking that they were going to become the standard that, that everything was measured by. And I knew this wasn't going to last long, but how long was it going to take? Because, uh, again, you have to do more. And I know that simulation is a bigger part of the sport now, but there's nothing like on-track time no matter what you do. And and so with the limited amount of that, how long was this going to take to figure this out? And, and I think when you look at At Chevrolet, and we're using them because they have seemed to be the strongest at every type of track that they've been to so far, but they have more cars in the race to go by. And obviously their organizations are top notch. Also, when it comes to that, but I think they were getting more data, more information because they had more people there and, and more of those cars in the mix. And so I think that that helped them. That was you know evident by through the test sessions and everything that they were getting. So I, I just believe that they hit on something. But Toyota is not going to sit back and take this. That their involvement was to be the number one team, and, and they've been that for many many years. And you you had to kind of know that came to a short track that that might be where they, they got it done, even though drivers consider the one-mile Phoenix track a short track. I, I think that was very eye-opening, and they said that, uh, that it was eye-opening, that they had a lot of work to do. And, and I still think there is work to be done there uh, in a number of ways, but they've obviously found themselves on the right track. So that's interesting.
0: So essentially strength in numbers type perspective yes, then. Yes, and, and with limited practice this year. yes. Just having more cars, Chevrolet's going yeah. to be a Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. not
3: like you know. It's not like when we get to Daytona and title of we talk about how few Toyotas <laughs> there are because they right. can't draft together. Right. Know, this is simply they're not getting as much input uh, and information back uh, at these races because they have fewer uh, fewer teams and drivers in there.
0: So yeah, that goes obviously data points and engineering. And last week when Burton was on the podcast, he said he doesn't want people to think. That next gen is just this old school kind of discussion about like, it's changed the game to the point where you've got a couple of guys hanging around like the barn deciding what shocks <laughs> they're going to run. So I don't want it to be like, like he, he wanted people to understand that this is still very much engineering based as much as like, we're kind of talking about next gen is like being throwback in some ways as someone who has raced in that era when, when there wasn't as much engineering or, you know, the data points and all the, the stuff you hear about now, what do you think about that
3: kind of impact? Is it good
0: to have that kind of engineering impact in NASCAR these days? Or
3: I think in today's world it is. Uh, yeah. I, I'm you know I, I think that I would look back that not not that I would look back. I have looked at this and thought, you know, we all feel like that we came around in the best time, and and I know that I came along in the best time because <laughs> if you put me and what I know and how I went about and and driving a car and needing. I was in my best time whenever I had input with that. And and not that the drivers don't have some input, but, but too much, a lot more is done. I won't say it's too much because, again, I believe in today's world and to get new fans involved that technology had to change and, and i think that that's a a part of what is bringing fans here in droves really uh that speaking of these new things and i think they're uh encouraged and entertained by this that by this younger fan base that i think that's a big part of what we're seeing here uh and i won't say a resurgence because the sport hadn't ever gone anywhere to begin with uh, there's still been hundreds of thousands of fans that that follow it and so uh but i think that it, it is it, a lot of people look and formula 1 was elevated by basically a documentary and TV show that and and you look at the technology involved in those cars and that just blows your mind you're you're fascinated with that i don't care from what part of motorsports you come from that that has been the standard that is set this way above everyone else Now we've got something that, yes, still not on that level, but it's much more beneficial to to today's world and today's time, and and I think that's intriguing to a lot of people, and so I think that it's something that is needed, and and fortunately, uh, especially the younger drivers uh, understand that uh, and and that side of it, and and so it's working very well.
0: And uh, no question, drivers still making a difference, but so are pick crews, and when we talk about the advancements that we've seen engineering-wise, I know that People don't think a pit stop choreography is like being engineered <laughs> but at the same time I mean what Joe Gibbs Racing has done this year they posted video of this in the preseason with the new single lug nut versus uh, you know the five lug nuts that they'd had for so long in NASCAR this year they switched to the single lug nut so Joe Gibbs Racing posted video in the preseason about having all of its crew members run in front of the car and appeared to be a time gain. We already knew there was going to be a time gain because it's not going to take as long to change tires with one lug nut as opposed to five. NASCAR recently began allowing this DJ in races where you can now run around the front of the car instead of making the rear tire changer wait until after the car was in the stall. So this was used by Joe Gibbs Racing at Richmond. It appeared to save Denny Hamlin a lot of time on his pit stops. Joe Gibbs was asked about it after the Richmond race. And Joe Gibbs said.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's a work in progress. I think it's something that our guys have really worked hard on. I, I think this is the first time that, you know, the game plan was to use it here, I think, NASCAR and everybody. But I think it'll be interesting because I think we had some of our guys with regular choreography and some with that. So I think that'll be, a, like I said, a work in progress. We'll analyze it and see what we think. And uh, – that's that's one of the fun things about sports. You know, you get something new and a different way of doing something. I, I think that's one of the fun things.
0: So, DJ, your take on this new pit stop choreography that is making stops even faster with a single lug nut?
3: Okay. So, I guess some of the old school is going to come out in me here. Um, <laughs> that's what we want. But I, I I don't see that the pit stops are already faster. Okay. Um, just. Because there's less to do here. Uh, Not saying it's not as difficult. I'm just saying there's obviously less to do with the one lug nut versus the five on on each wheel. I understand teams trying to get an advantage. But allowing everybody, every pit crew person to go around the front of the car seems to be a safety issue to me. I'm sure that NASCAR has looked at that. Um, I haven't spoken with anyone there. I thought when I first heard it and saw it, I I thought it was a horrible idea. And I honestly didn't think anything about it because I didn't think that it would go anywhere. I I thought that that was not going to be allowed, that there was no way that we were going to go that far and and make that change. Uh, And I'm going to sit here and say I, I still think it's a... Uh, a safety liability and uh, that surprises me because of how far we've come are we forgetting you know things that happened many years ago that made us change a lot of the things that happen on pit road this day and time and the
0: reason being that team members have been hurt and killed yes in pit stop accidents yes. Yes. like that yep
3: so not only are you putting them in the harm's way of their own driver but of other drivers there to where you know they're coming in a different direction and i realize yes they are looking where they could get clipped from behind but generally uh this car coming uh they they're either already down in their position if one has come from behind or that they, they can see that as they're going out there so i i just you know, someone's gonna have to explain to me how it's not more of a safety liability And we just heard Joe Gibbs talking about
0: it. And essentially what he's saying is, look, we're doing it this way. We're doing it the old way. I'm sure other teams are doing, are experimenting with both ways as well. But if the Denny Hamlin way that they were doing it is faster and and won the race at Richmond, it would be logical to think we're probably going to see more teams use it. So at that point, Is it kind of incumbent upon NASCAR? If if you're saying you feel like, hey, this isn't safe, NASCAR would have to step in. The teams can't be allowed to sort of decide this based on crew member safety. They're in it to win.
3: Yeah, I I would say that we've, in my opinion, and if I were asked about that, I would say, okay, before this gets out of hand and we have more teams doing it and taking that time, why not? Let's reduce that and say that we have to go behind the car with the rear tire changer, as we've, we've done, and, and let's leave it at that before more gets there, and then we see something happen with that. Not saying that something still can't happen going around the back, because you know these are cars and, and drivers, and you know they're in a hurry to, to get into their stalls, but I just think that this is more of a, a liability, and, and I would nip it in the bud before it gets to that point, personally.
0: Another impact this year on the crews is that there is only one off weekend this year. They'll be racing on Easter Sunday this year with the Bristol Dirt Race. Hamlin's crew chief, Chris Gabehart, talked about how he reshuffled his team's schedule this year to avoid burnout with only the one off weekend. And he said that...
1: Kellycrandleracer.com. How concerned are you about just monitoring your guys for burnout and just making sure you're taking care of them when it comes to just being put through the ringer this year? Definitely uh, enough that I spent weeks of the off season putting together an organized schedule that would give each of my guys two extra weekends off. And it's done in a, in a way that won't hurt the race team. It was scheduled choreographed. It's not haphazard. They all know what weekends are getting off and when. Um, cause I think it's a big deal, uh, on, on top of rolling out a new car. We're now all traveling more than we have with a much reduced roster park shortages you know there's no secret on all that so it's a lot of work for these guys it's a big deal and uh i, I spent a lot of time in the off season trying to get it literally from race one to 36 they all know when they're getting off and who's going and how behind the wall choreography is gonna change. i mean it's a big deal uh I, I didn't want it to be a distraction if you didn't do it right week to week, it would be a distraction. But I wanted it to be such that everybody could plan an off weekend with their families and all that's been done.
0: So your perspective, DJ, you were racing in 2001 when NASCAR expanded to 36 races a year. And I think at that point, it was 20 weeks in a row to end the year. And everybody was saying, oh my gosh, how are we doing that? This year, 35 out of 36 weeks, uh, or well, 36 out of 37, I guess I should say, they'll be racing all the way through. What do you make of, I guess, team burnout and how teams will adapt to that like maybe Chris Gapard has?
3: That was something when I saw the schedule coming out that I wondered how people would handle that because there, there, there is that need. I mean, I know that you know, you look at the NFL and Major League Baseball and NBA you know, giving their players rest and things like that, and, you know, this is the same way. These people work extremely hard. You know, even days that they're home working in the race shop, you know, they're still there for eight to ten hours and maybe more than that in getting these cars prepared. And then you have to turn around and take off every single weekend. I, I applaud Chris Gabar for for recognizing this before it ever starts that, you know, this could be a real issue, especially... You're, when's it really going to hit? Whenever the playoffs start, and, and they they plan to be a part. Of, and obviously now they are a part of the playoffs for sure. But uh, you know they, they they he might even recognize they need more than than what he sat down with because this is a grueling schedule. Yeah. I mean it's going to be tough on the drivers. You know they're going to have to look at how they go about doing things uh, than what they've had in the past because, you know, there's just – even though they're not – their week isn't taken up quite as much in, in most cases as what the, the team members are, uh, th- there's still a lot that goes on in a driver's world and a driver's schedule, and I think we'll see more of that happening. Well,
0: on the driver's side, I can remember when you won the 1999 championship, I remember talking to you in the 2000 season, and you had front-loaded a lot of your appearances and things because you knew yes. how active it would be toward the back of the year, mm-hmm. and I would presume – if you're a driver now, you're probably yes. looking at doing the same thing. Right?
3: I, I would say yes, yeah, because you, you, there are, are sponsor obligations. You know, you sign up for that, and so you know, there's a certain number, but try to get as much of that out of the way where uh, you can get that done, and, and then you can take some time to yourself and and for your family uh, a, as you move forward and and through the season, and get yourself prepared for the end whenever you try to win a championship.
0: Putting a bow on Richmond, we were talking. We're about to go do NASCAR American Motor Mouths, and you were talking on the call this morning about how you thought the racing at Richmond was was excellent that, yeah. that, that outside groove came in the daytime race they're gonna have two daytime races at richmond for the first time and i don't know how long what do you make of where richmond raceway is as a track right now because burton and i talked about this last week that the racing has kind of been hit and miss on in the night races but it seems like when they run during the day i think it's a little bit better you know i know there's still talk out there about uh. the sealer which sadly has been gone for almost 20 years now i mean where do you think richmond is
3: right now in terms of racing quality I, 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 as a driver, there there is no doubt that the racing, uh, from the standpoint of competitive racing and a better view for the fans, I- is in a day race. So instead of trying to manufacture good racing by having to put something down on the racetrack, why not just make it another day race? I mean that that seems to be simply done uh, to me that yeah. that we do that because I don't I don't know that anyone can argue with you that that the racing I- is better from a standpoint of being competitive and and good for the fans to watch during the day there. So I would look and hope that they might make that change and and uh, you know that's the simplest most cost effective way uh, yeah. to 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 satisfy this and, and you know give us the best racing possible
0: does it lose anything by not having i mean for so long it was two saturday night races a year yeah does that matter as much or no? i don't i don't
3: think so you mm. know i mean why why do we have to have that i mean i know saturday night's great because that's kind of how we all grew up racing and going to our local short track and stuff but you know people can go to their local short track on saturday night and then see a race on sunday or yeah you can race it on saturday afternoon doesn't have to be sunday yeah. uh, you know can just do it saturday during the day if you want to keep the saturday date just say we're moving the start times back to this And, and you know make it you know Xfinity on Friday and and the cup race on on Saturday uh no no reason not to do that so
0: speaking of Saturday night racing the Virginia short track season continues this Saturday night Martinsville Speedway uh, what do you think we'll see Martinsville with the next gen car for the first time?
3: Ah, uh, this this is going to be exciting. You know before you you had to be a little care- not that anybody was actually when you watch these races you say how can you say anybody was being careful not to knock a fender in on a tire or anything like that but I think that this car is going to allow more contact and take more contact so I think we're I think we're getting ready to see more exciting racing than maybe we've seen at Martinsville, which is hard to imagine because <laughs> it's just been spectacular. Yeah. I mean, it's it's become the one of the greatest short track races, one of the best races that you'll see anywhere. And uh, But I think that the potential is there. Uh, and what I saw at Richmond with the cars being able to go around the outside, I think that's a very real possibility at Martinsville too. And so uh, I, I think that it's opened up uh, a whole new window for this. If it performs the way that I think, and with the brakes, being so much better than what they've had there in the past driving deeper into the corner and you know before if you took it a little bit too deep not only did you heat up your brakes but you started wheel hopping so if you're going to drive it further in there now with the better brakes that you have uh, then the potential for things to happen and for contact not that i'm looking for wrecks but contact is what we look for you know and that's why we love these short tracks
0: yeah you love leaning on people and i guess if you knew you could run 500 laps in martinsville and know i'd never have to worry about wheel hop and my brakes are going to last longer than ever before me, better than ever before. Yeah. That's kind of recipe for yeah. a fun time, right? Yeah,
3: fun time. And the drivers better get ready because I think it's going to be the most physical race they've run there simply wow. because there's no time to take a break now that you've got these breaks that you don't really have to worry about.
0: Good stuff. Always a fun time to have you on the NASCAR and NBC podcast, DJ. Thanks, thanks. for Thanks, appreciate
3: there. you having me, Nate. Good to see you. Good to see you.
0: Our thanks again to Dale Jarrett for joining us. Thanks to NASCAR and NBC producers Emily Conboy and Aaron Feldstein for getting DJ as a guest. This appearance came ahead of DJ's debut on NASCAR America Motor Mouths this season. You can check out the Monday, April 4th episode on the Motorsports on NBC YouTube channel. DJ Kyle Petty and I had some good conversation and a great interview with Denny Hamlin, winner of Richmond. Also, lots of discussion on the newly announced NASCAR Hall of Fame Class of 2023 nominees, so you can check that out it as well. All the MotorMouths episodes and clips are on the Motorsports on NBC YouTube channel, along with lots more great daily content and highlights, as well as the on-camera version of this podcast. So make sure you visit and subscribe to the Motorsports on NBC YouTube channel. And a big motorsports weekend is coming up. As we mentioned, NASCAR is under the lights Saturday night at Martinsville. MotoGP is at Circuit of the Americas in Austin, Texas. Supercross heads to St. Louis and the Acura Grand Prix of Long Beach welcomes the IndyCar and IMSA series Saturday and Sunday. I won't bore you with all the times, TV, and streaming information here, but if you go to NBCSports.com NASCAR and NBCSports.com motors, you will find all the information you seek via NASCAR Talk and Motorsports Talk, along with lots of other great content, stories, and videos. So check out our NBC Sports digital sites at NBCSports.com. If you have any NASCAR and NBC podcast feedback, you can send to me on Twitter, at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast.